When the topic of historically important road races comes up in conversation, there are few surefire North American events that need to be mentioned. The Boston Marathon, around the bay, the Peachtree Road Races, but there is one event, unfairly in my opinion, that seems to get left out. It's an event that in its heyday attracted the likes of Bill Rogers, Frank Shorter, Alberto Salazar, Ron Hill, Jerome Drayton, just to name a very select few. The racing event was not in a major center. It wasn't really on roads that were pin straight, flat, or even prone to wicked fast times, but it was actually through a park with grinding hills in what was Canada's 10th largest city at the time, London, Ontario. This week on the Terminal Mile, we're going to take a look at the legend of the Springbank International Road Races. Do a quick poll of some running friends, and I guarantee to you it'll almost seem unanimous. Outside of some real historians of the sport, and maybe a couple locals who grew up hearing the stories, there's not really a whole lot of people who know about the Springbank International Road Races. And to be fair, I can't say I'm all that surprised. The prime running of these events happened between 68 and 85, so not really a whole lot of the years there, but in its limited time it really left its mark. Today we'll be examining just what made those races so special, we'll take a look at some competitors, the course, and even the lasting effect that it had on those lucky enough to witness or be a part of those events. Now the event itself was founded back in 1968 by a man named Dave Prokop. He set the races along the banks of the Thames River in Springbank Park, London, Ontario. Now these events were comprised of a few different races all based on a loop of the park. There was the long 12 miler, the shorter 4.5 miler for women and for men, there's the Masters 7 miler and a high school 3 miler. Now these were the days before the running boom of the 1970s when road racing really started to attract more people, but it seems that right from the start, Dave Prokop was able to attract some of the best in the world, with Boston Marathon winner Ambie Burfoot taking the win at the first Springbank long race. Now from there, it seemed like other big names were quick to join in, and soon it got to the point where even some of the best distance athletes in the world, while not being able to take any appearance money because of the amateur nature of the sport at the time, were willing to do whatever it would take to get to the starting line, even if it meant paying it out of their own pocket. Uh, uh, 1975, I decided to, uh, uh, I'd like to run it. It was sort of a last minute um, decision. That's distance runner Steve Hogue. Steve ran the race back in 1975 and came fifth in the long race. It should be noted that the Springbank Road Races happened typically in the middle of September, which was roughly half a year after Steve came second in the Boston Marathon. Keep that in mind as he goes on. I called up to um, Dave Prokop, or I got in touch with Dave Prokop, the race director, and I asked him if there'd be any tra travel money or um, lodging and that type of thing. Back in those days, you, you definitely didn't ask for money, <laughs> appearance money. Um, but I think he was pretty well committed to uh, to bringing in Frank Shorter and Bill Rogers and some others, and he he basically just said there was um, there were no funds left. Uh, he had loved he said he'd love to have me run and and uh, he did comp my entry fee and paid for my entry fee and I believe he got me um, lodging up there also. But we pretty much had to get up there on my own. That's right. There wasn't even any travel funds for the man who came in second at that year's version of one of the world's most renowned marathons. 
Luckily, it didn't slow Steve down all that much, though. I came up with two other uh, friends from the Twin Cities. Um, we flew up in a little Cessna. One of my friends was a pilot, and we uh, it's the first time I'd ever flown in one of those little little planes. And we just uh, flew up. I believe we flew up to uh, Detroit, and then uh, drove across the border into uh, Windsor. And then up to, to London. I can't even remember how far it was. It seemed like it was maybe a couple hours or hour and a half. Uh, but uh, it was kind of an adventure getting up there because the, those small planes are, uh, you basically just follow the, follow the, the railroad tracks. <laughs> Likewise with Bill Rogers, a.k.a. Boston Billy, four-time winner of the Boston Marathon, Olympian, and former American record holder, it was the draw of the competition that brought him to Springbank. I think it's just the way the sport was at that time. You got to remember, it was you know amateurism still ruled road racing. There was no prize money or appearance money, that sort of thing. So, so the runners, we we would be anywhere. And I, I'm trying to remember how I first heard about Springbank. I can't recall, to tell you the truth. But you know, once I I raced there against Jerome and Frank, and I think John Anderson and, and maybe Neil Cusack. Both Boston winners were running, and Salazar ran the race years later, and Nick Rose, and uh, yeah, it, it was something. It was it was one of the first really high level uh, road races with professional level, Olympic level uh, competitors. Of course, with such high powered fields featuring some of the best in the world facing off for supremacy in the park, racing magic was bound to happen. Perhaps one of the most memorable moments was in 1970, when the long race came down to Canadian marathon record holder Jerome Drayton dueling Ron Hill, the legendary English marathoner. Steve Weiler is the current race director and has done a lot of research on the event. One, one big one in particular, it's what I, I started off my, um, my research paper uh, with it on, uh, and, and the quote's just fantastic. It's by um, uh, Jock Semple, who's, uh, who is the... Uh, race director, co-race director for the Boston Marathon for uh, decades, um, and describing the uh, 1970, I think it is, race, uh, there's just this epic duel between Jerome, Jerome Drayden and um, Ron Hill. It's like fairly comparable to uh, uh, the duel in the duel in the sun, uh, like between Beardsley and Salazar. It's the same kind of thing, but when you have someone like the, the Boston Marathon race director saying, that was the greatest race I've ever seen. That was the greatest two-man duel I've seen in my life. <laughs> you, you know, it was pretty good. So that that was the uh, that was the third year of the event. Another big moment for the race happened in 1977 when Bill Rogers took on the course for a second time and ended up setting the course record. Uh, Ian Stewart was there racing, and Tony Simmons, and and Stewart had beaten me in the World Cross Countries. In 75, and, 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 but I thought here the distance would suit me better. And, and so that's, and, and I was in good shape then. And so I think it, it, it gave me some momentum that I had someone to sort of psychologically um, focus on. And, and he took the lead pretty quickly, but, but I, I think I was feeling good. I was in good shape. I was doing high mileage. It, it just went my way that day. The last time I raced him was in the World Cross Countries in Robot Morocco, where he took the gold and I took the bronze. And he, um, he had a, a very good kick and, and beat me by seven seconds. Spanish guy was second, Mariano Haro. But, but I knew who Ian was. I knew he was a great track racer. But, but I figured this was more, more to my liking on the roads a little bit, and maybe longer. <laughs> now, Boston Billy set that course record 
in 54.31, which is a very impressive time for a 12-mile run. A quick note on that, though. While called a 12-miler, it was actually a little bit short. Steve Weiler explains. In the booklets, they'd be accurate distance, um, but they would, like, they would present it as the 12-miler and then, you know, have the correct distance listed in the booklet. So people knew what they were racing, but uh, I think it was just a less formal, you know, casual kind of error and approach to those things. Um, and it was the same route every year. You're comparing course records, um, you know, with people that ran on the same route. Um, and there's probably a bit less, uh, I don't know, a bit less concern about having it an exact distance. Now, after the international era, they did switch to, uh, you know, getting it at exactly 20K or exactly half marathon, that kind of thing. Um, I think that's more a reflection of uh, demand from the participants. And while we're on that topic, while nowadays everything is done in standard lengths, like 5 and 10 kilometer races, one thing that really made Springbank stand out was its weird distances. Perhaps not all that weird at the time, though. Bill Rogers explains. You know, 20Ks weren't too, too popular, and the half marathon hadn't built up to what it is now, of course, you know. Road races were often, you know, from one iconic location to another, or as in the case in the park in Springbank, it was measured, uh, I guess, by the circuit itself. I think also the, the focus on records wasn't as strong, you know, back in the 70s as it is today, probably because of the, the financial side, you know, and the big push in the marathon for by agents and race directors, you know, for fast times. Well, the course may have been a little bit off in measurement, and the distance traveled on it was a little bit weird. There was no denying that the course was actually one of the race's most valuable assets, though. And Springbank? Yeah, it was great. I love the course. I love the rolling nature of the course and the crowd. It was like running cross-country in the fall. You know, it had that feel to it, and, uh, you know, that it was a, a, a circuit, it, uh, you know, the crowd could be could see you come by each time. It was unlike a marathon where, where spectators don't get to see the top competitors or any particular group for very long. You know, they go by and then they they're through going on to another part in your city. But but the, the park was just the perfect place. You know, to 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 see a race as well. Yeah, there was there was a real there was a powerful feeling to the race and 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 it probably being in that. And that circuit, it was almost like a track, you know, like a cross-country type track. And it had, it had some grades, but they weren't such steep hills, you know, that they would make it um, a, a brutal kind of a course. You know, some road races, they're almost designed to be brutal, and, and the, the, the time doesn't mean anything. But here it was kind of a, a marathon-type grades where you, you, or a cross-country type grade, um, where we could keep moving at a pretty fast pace, you know. Steve Hoke also has fond memories of the course. I, I think it was actually uh, a pretty fast course overall. I don't like I said I, the the grades, if there were many, they were just very slight, and it kind of uh, broke it up a little bit. It wasn't like just a perfectly flat course. But I remember it was, it was scenic. I remember that at one end there was kind of a zoo. Another person who ran the races was John Loney an athlete who was in the high school three-miler initially, but would later go on to compete at a high level. He now coaches the Fanshawe cross-country team and lives in London. Here are his impressions of the course. But anybody that's ever run Springbank uh, will remember the dam hill, which is just, I mean, it is what it is. It was a hill right by the dam. Um, and it was really the only significant hill on the course. But, I mean, looking at it now, it does 
there's a little bit of incline here and there, and um, especially headed up towards the finish. It's actually it's kind of it's kind of deceptive. The, the, the finish would have been a gradual, really gradual, subtle uphill finish. But the the dam hill was um, pretty tough hill. I mean, it's not terribly long and and relatively steep. But I think it was where it was on the course. It was probably oh, it was probably right at about mile I think when you got to the top of the damn hill, you probably had about a kilometer to go. Steve Weiler expands. The loop has, has been the loop for a long time. Uh, there's been some minor changes um, due to um, reconstruction of, of the dam. Um, but o- overall, the loop's the loop and the biggest change uh, from 1968 until, you know, on, on Sunday two days ago, uh, or three days ago when, when we did the 48th edition of the event, is uh, we, no longer, um, we no longer run over Animal Hill. Uh, distinguishing features I've already uh, mentioned a bit, but uh, Dam Hill, uh, usually when a, a hill has its own name, it's a bad sign. Um, but uh, it, it, it's not that it's that big a hill, but in the 12 miler, you'd be doing it four times. Uh, and you'd also be going up Animal Hill four times. Animal Hill, um, it's not that the hill itself isn't animal, though it's decently long. It's that it's going along Storybook Gardens, and there's a whole bunch of animals in Storybook Gardens. Uh, so you're you're running along, and animals are squawking at you or making noise or whatever. Um, but that, that's a decently long hill. Not super steep, but a pretty long hill. Though. Another thing that made Springbank so special was its different race distances. You know, and this is male races, female races, high school, open, masters. And you just you plunked yourself down in Springbank Park and just watch some of like, the best running on the planet um, just go by you. While many of the most notable names in attendance were racing the 12-miler, that didn't mean that the other classes were lacking in competition. Yeah, I mean, the main event's the main event, and you go through the years in terms of the actual race and depth of the field. The uh, men's quote-unquote 12-miler um, was the main competition. Uh, but you got to really, you got to really appreciate uh, a meet where where the second event, second most important event, has Frank Shorter in it or or Grant McLaren in it, right? I mean, that's that's just how good it was. Now. What probably was the case is in those years, or someone like Shorter, um, maybe he felt he wasn't in top form or something like that that year. He wanted to come up anyway, but he went to you know he went to the shorter distance. Um, but yeah, there was strong strong uh, competition in the uh, the four and a half miler as well. And uh, Springbank um, was kind of an originating event for introducing um, you know different age groups and uh, elite and mass participation. You know, all at, all at once, those kinds of things in terms of the, the early days of the boom. Um, so bringing in things like, um, you know, the high schoolers race and the masters race. And uh, when, I, when I did my essay on this way back, I had someone explain to me that um, Springbank uh, introducing this masters road race was actually uh, like pretty significant in the, uh, the early stages of, of, you know, kind of growing the masters racing community. The high school three-miler was known for bringing in some future stars. Steve Hogue remembers one person in particular. Yeah, Salazar from Waveland, Waveland High School in, in, uh, in Massachusetts. Yeah, he was just, that's the first I had heard of Salazar. Um, you know, this, we heard about this phenomenal kid, and he was kind of training with Bill Rogers. And, and uh, yeah, he was... Uh, I don't know if, if he ever ran it when he was older, you know, a little older, but uh, 
Yeah, that was. Uh, yeah, in terms of quality, it's certainly in North America. Uh, it would give it would give Boston a good run just for the name and dropping names. Yeah. <laughs> Salazar would hold the record in the three miler until the early '80s, but it wasn't from a lack of field. John Loney explains. Well, it was a bit of an eye opener because I remember it very vividly, um, warming up, and then um, you know I wasn't as much of a student of the sport as I as I was to become later. But so on the start line, they would do introductions of some of the key competitors. And, uh, you know, I'm looking around and thinking that I had a pretty good chance here. And they started introducing some of the guys that were running. And I think there was Dave Reed was there. Um, Mark Olson was there. John Castellano was there. And as I'm hearing all these names, I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, well, okay, well, second's good. Well, third's good. Well, fifth's good. And then by the time I, they were finished announcing people, I thought, geez, John, you don't have a shot of cracking the top ten here. So it leaves the question because running really isn't the most viewer-friendly of sports, especially distance running, as runners will disappear and reappear, even on a looped course. So what were the turnouts like back then? Yeah, I mean, the, the crowd support is the thing that really blew my mind when I was um, doing my research on this, uh, to, to, to read that they, they had so many people come out that it was, it was a problem. They actually had to say to the spectators to, you know, spread yourself around the course because, you know, there's too many people trying to be at the finish line. Um, I, I can't even think of another uh, event, you know, in a city this size that would have that uh, problem. I'd love to have that kind of problem. Um, but, yeah, during the peak years, uh, supposedly three to 5,000 spectators would be coming out. So, I mean, it'd just be a wall, just a line of people um, around the course. It was huge. I mean, that's the one thing I remember about it really vividly was, I mean, literally, like, people around the entire course. I mean, I think the loop that we did for the high school race, the three-mile loop, was then fairly standard. They extended it a little bit. There was an open four-miler. There was a 12-miler. There was a master seven-miler. It was all based around this sort of um, three-mile loop. And I can remember really clearly, like, people all the way around the loop. You know, and, I, and then, you know, the, 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 the sort of the modern resurrection of Springbank that was tried a few years ago, just like tailed in comparison. I mean, it was just once you got past the start, then you just have sort of a smattering of people on the course. But that's what I remember about spring rank was, you know, people, people the whole way, which again, you don't see that <laughs> anymore either. Uh, I, I remember just people sitting around on the grass on the next to the roadway and just watching and cheering. And, you know, there were certainly regular spectators too, that, uh, were there, um, but yeah, it was just it was just an incredibly uh, fun atmosphere. As far as media goes, the local media seemed to have covered it well, with the local radio stations, newspaper, and even TV station covering the event. The Springbank Road Races also attracted running publications such as Runner's World, who, let's be honest, would have been quite foolish to pass up a race like that. Interestingly enough, though, the race never seemed to crack the mainstream media abroad. Though, here's what Steve Hogue remembers. But it's funny because here, um, you know, outside of the the few local runners that knew followed it, I mean, it, it had it didn't even register with the the media here. I mean, you know, I could have won Springbank, and I don't think I would have gotten much, you know, <laughs> much uh, much publicity from it because you know it's a real it's a real niche event that that uh, you know only only a certain following knows about. And, uh... 
Despite that, the London crowd seemed to have latched onto the race, supporting it thoroughly. The runners loved it, so really what went wrong? Why is there no more Springbank International Road Races? Uh, money. It's as, it's as simple as that. Um, the, uh, the, the running boom was good, bringing in more, more participants, and more participants brings in more, uh, you know, entry fees, and people see that, and then they put on events, and so there's just more and more events. And in terms of keeping that elite aspect going, uh, it began to cost more and more money. Because remember, er, er, early days, um, they were inviting people to come and run in the event and saying, uh, oh, yeah, we got local families that can bill at you, you know, put you up. So, you know, come on, Dan, you've got a place to stay. That's your invitation. And compare that with nowadays, something like the, you know, the Toronto Marathon coming up in October. Uh, you've got people signing contracts with appearance fees and bonuses and, and whatnot. And then that goes, you know, fairly deep into the field, people that have access to that kind of money. Um, it's it's so, so different. So, um, uh, yeah, the, the key organizers in, um, I guess, 84 going into 85, if they have that, if I have that right, um, basically said they weren't, they weren't able to put together the fields they wanted to anymore. It wasn't truly international anymore. And uh, they didn't want to take a step backwards. So they, so they quit. Uh, fortunately, a, a local guy uh, took it on to to keep the event going in a you know more local capacity, um, and and thankfully that's continued through to this day. Um, but uh, yeah, it all it all comes down to money. It was a pure fun race. It really, really was. It was very, very exciting, and uh, I think the best races are like that. You know, that's why what's the way they kind of endure. But I think the big change to professionalism. The prize money affected a lot of races, and I think it was one of the races that was affected. Unfortunately, that's what I expected. But a racing fan like myself can't help but wonder, could there ever be an event like this again? Yeah, it's interesting. I think, first of all, it would be uh, today, with all the agents and managers, it would be just extremely hard to get... Uh, a, uh, you could get a decent quality field, but... Um, Unless it, unless you can find someone that just had a corporation or an individual that just had money to burn, and just said, you know, I don't care what it costs, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring this gathering of runners, and you could probably get and you offered, you know, we didn't have prize money back then, and if you if you could offer prize money, um, you could probably get a darn good field. I mean, I know you'd get some good Kenyans and Ethiopians and. And you might be able to get some of the best U.S. runners and the best Canadian runners, but it, it just—it'd be hard to duplicate that just because of the nature of the way agents uh, operate today. They just—it's uh, it, kind of sad in a way. I mean, if a runner wants to run a race, it's almost like he—he he has to get the uh, permission of his agent. <laughs> you know, does this fit into your schedule? You know, or your sponsor? Does this? And um, but yeah, if you had enough prize money. Uh, available, yeah. You you could get you could you could do it. It just um, it would just be it, those days were so different because I imagine an individual like Frank Shorter maybe they well they obviously paid his his airfare and they put him up and maybe they gave him some kind of stipend, uh, kind of an under the table arrangement something. I'm sure Frank got something for coming up there. 
and and Billy probably did too. But uh, you know, it wasn't like the hundred thousand dollars that uh, a guy would demand now. I mean, to, you know, it's, it was just so uh, innocent those days back then, and it was a little bit. I want to say that there's maybe a little bit of a little bit of a pride involved. I think, you know, Bill and Frank had a little competitive um, competitiveness among them. Uh, Drayton, I think, wanted to, you know Drayton had dropped out at Boston. I think he wanted to to show uh, show people something. And yeah, I really I think that entered into it. Whereas now, it's just it's pretty much money. <laughs> you know, it's just. Uh, it's it's just so different. I mean, I'd go up to. I mean, I went up to Springbank, and uh, you know, it cost didn't cost me much, but I mean, it came out of my own pocket to go up there just because I wanted to go up there. It was just the place to go. I mean, I'd run Boston and found some some success there, and uh, Fuku, uh, Fukuoka I wanted to run, but um, Springbank definitely. And you know, it really, it isn't that far away. I mean, it's. It's uh, an international race, but I mean it's really not terribly far away. So um, yeah, I, I, but that's that, that was the thinking back then. As I think you, um, there was a lot of pride involved, and and the money was just so uh, secondary that I I just don't think it uh, you know it ever entered in. I I don't know. I I, I don't see it. I think there's like Springbank was like the right. Thing at the right time. I mean, and, and none of these guys were getting appearance money. None of them were getting prize money. Um, they got billeted. A lot of them in, in London, like you know, family would take them in for the weekend, uh, and they were all they were coming to Springbank simply for the opportunity to run, uh, you know, a, a fast race against some incredible competition, and that, that was it. And I think nowadays there's just you know people pick and choose their races, and they, I mean. Some people are fortunate enough that they can think in terms of prize money, and I, I don't know what you could do to get that many quality runners in one place at one time. I just I think it was Springbank was right for the time period. I just don't think you could do it today. I mean, we want them to do it, you know, within the province of Ontario or, or get some people from other provinces, but you know, I mean, because it was called the Springbank International Road Races, and they were truly. International. I mean, I remember the year that Ron Hill showed up and ran the Masters Seven, and all I knew him of was the guy that, like, oh, I'd worn a bunch of his running gear because he had his own clothing line already, like running singlets and stuff. I'm like, there's Ron Hill. Like, I have one of his singlets. I have a pair of his shorts. <laughs> I think everybody did back then. And yeah, I mean, the fact that these guys came to London, Ontario, of all, I mean, it's not exactly a mecca. Of running, and it certainly wasn't at the time. And there, there were some good runners that came out of this area, but uh, yeah, I, I, it would take one heck of a promoter to put together a Springbank today. The fact that there is no more big road race like that is a real shame. It seems like everyone there had tons of stories to tell and still glow about the event. You can't help but feel that this played a huge part in developing the young runners in attendance. Oh, what? Well, I remember one of the things, because my, my brother wasn't much of a runner, but he used, he used to come with me to Springbank. And one of the things we liked to do after the races was um, collect singlets. You go out to runners, because, I mean, they were all sponsored, and, you know, they had multiple singlets. And so you used to go up to these people. I would give them a list of, like, here's, here's the clubs that we're looking for. So Athletics West was a big club out of Oregon. And I said, if you see an Athletics West thing, that's one you want to get. 
there was a club called the Sub Four Track Club. Like if you see one of those, get one of those. I remember he got one off a guy named Miguel Tibaduiza, who was probably weighed about a buck five. And uh, my brother said, "Does it matter if this thing is fit?" I'm like, "No, I don't want to wear it. I just want to collect it." And so we used to go around and say, "Hey, could I?" You know, could I have your singlet? Could I have your singlet? Could I have your singlet? And, and most of the times, the guys would just give it up. They'd just say, "Sure, here you go. I'll just get another one." And uh, you know, I mean, there was a there was a program for Springbank, so you could there was a space at the back of the program for autographs. Uh, I mean, it was unbelievable. I mean, you go run your race, and then you just spend the rest of the day like stargazing at, uh, at all the other runners. And um, I think one of my one of my favorite stories to this day is for years. Uh, my assistant coach at Fanshawe, uh, was Ron Beck. Because Ron was like 13th Canadian to run a sub for him in a mile. And back in the day, he, he ran, showed up one time at Springbank to run the, uh, the open four miler, which was a very, you know, very hotly contested race. And he had just come back from Japan. He'd run the, um, the Chiba, like the Ekiden, the relay race for Canada. And I think he flew back the night before and then came to Springbank to run the open four miler and uh, I told my brother like you know have your program handy anybody that finishes in like the top 10 of any race get their autograph and so he did that and then I've been coaching with Ron for a few years at, uh, at Fanshawe and then one day I came across my old program from Springbank and I opened up the back and there was Ron's signature uh, in the back and I guess my brother had gone up to him because I said Anybody that's in the top ten, uh, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure what place he was that year, but so there was like Ron's autograph in the back of my old Springbank program, and so we had a good laugh over that. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Terminal Mile. It was truly an honor to search out and dig up the past of this forgotten mammoth of a road race. So much thanks goes out to Bill Rogers, Steve Hogue, Steve Weiler, and John Loney for their time and for their knowledge. Big thanks to Tracky for their ongoing support and to you for listening. A reminder, while it's no longer the Springbank International, there's still an international event that goes on in mid-September in Springbank Park, and it's always very well organized, and it's a ton of fun. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Tracky.ca. You've been listening to The Terminal Mile, a Tracky Radio production.